This morning's scripture reading will come from the book of Ephesians, the third chapter. will commence in verse 1 and culminate with verse 13. And it reads, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of the Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone in the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. This is God's word. You may be seated. Inside of the, uh, the bulletin, you'll find uh, not only the order of worship, but you'll find a, a sheet in there. It's a kind of an outline that you can fill in some of the blanks or make some notes uh, beside it as we go through this, this portion of Scripture that Mike has just read for us. Uh, for those that um, uh, have that out right now, if you look at the very bottom of it, you'll see that there are a couple of questions. Uh, as you know, um, our small groups are going through the book of Ephesians as well, talking about uh, the sermon and making application. And the questions uh, that you're going to be using tonight in small groups are found there at the bottom of that page. Uh, we're, again, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Let's ask God to bless us as bow our heads and join our hearts. We, we pray to you, Father, in the name of Jesus, thankful that you are the God who makes extravagant promises. We relish your promises of faith and presence and solidarity and blessing. And we exude in all of them, Father, in all of them. We have discovered and we are discovering even this very day that all these come to us in the midst of hard and deep obedience. You are the God who calls people like us who are black and brown and white and rich and poor and middle class in healthy and in unhealthy ways, uneducated and educated, wise and foolish, you call us not only to listen to your voice, but to be your people in this planet. 
And this morning, as we consider this text, Father, we ask in the name of Jesus again that you grant us eyes and ears to discern your word and to discern its place in the moment-to-moment of each day. Bless us in this way, we pray it. Amen. One of the, uh, the, the, the commentators on uh, Ephesians, I, I think one of probably the better ones, is a fellow by the name of Ben Witherington. And one of the things that he says over and over again as he writes about this great letter that Paul has written to the church in Ephesus is that Paul is using a, a rhetorical style that was very common in the ancient world, and he calls it the epidictic style. If you want to split hairs, the Asiatic epidictic rhetorical style. And all that is, is just basically Paul, and when he begins to think about God, begins to pile attribute upon achievement, upon blessing, upon promise, upon revelation of his character, the supreme character of God in the, the entire universe. He begins to pile on and on and on and on and on and on and on in order with these awe-filled facts to get awe and wonder to overflow in our heart. Now, you know as well as I do, that's exactly what he's been doing. I mean, when he talks about all of the things that God has done for us, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He has chosen us before the beginning of time to be holy and blameless in Christ. He has predestined us. He is shaping us to be a part of his family. All of this to the praise of God. And then he turns to the Christ and says, you know what you have in Christ? You have the redemption of from your enslavement to sin. The power of sin is done in your life. You also, in the blood of Jesus, have the forgiveness of sin. And we become, because of all of that, the praise to Christ's glory. And then he starts talking about the Spirit of God. And that that Spirit comes to us as we come to God. And our baptism and our repentance and our confession and in faith, that Spirit comes to us and it marks us with the seal, uh, making us genuine and authentically His. But at the same time, that Spirit is a deposit in us like earnest money. That God is giving His Spirit in us to, to, uh, to ensure all of the promises in Christ will come true, all to the praise of His glory. And not only that, we are saved by grace and not by rule-keeping, chapter 2. That we were once dead in our sins and now we have been made alive in Christ. There are all of these blessings and the people begin to have their hearts lit on fire. Well, again, we, know, we do the same thing in the United States. It's not the Asiatic, epidictic, rhetorical style. It's the American, epidictic, rhetorical style. Uh, think about what we do at every sporting event, uh, uh, primarily the professional ones. Think about what happens at the beginning of every game. This last Monday, some friends, uh, actually not friends, but a, a, a nephew, and Jordan and I went to the Spurs-Grizzly game. And about uh, the time that uh, we were beginning to think this game is never going to begin, they introduced the Grizzlies. It's kind of boring. Everybody's just kind of standing around and just, oh, um, you know. And then it's time to introduce the Spurs. And if you've been to a Spurs game, you know what happens. The lights go out. Place is pitch black. And all of a sudden that big disco light and the spotlights begin spinning everywhere. There's this big beat music that begins to blare over the sound system. And instead of using words, they use a highlight video. And it's up there on the big screen for everybody to see, especially the opposing team. And here's in a capsule what the highlight film was. Dunk, 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 block, three-pointer, three-pointer, steal, dunk, block, three-pointer, dunk, dunk, dunk. 
And what it does is get the crowd into a, a frenzy and everybody excited, but it's also to cause the other team to shake in their tennis shoes. It's to rattle them. Now, as this letter is being read to the church in Ephesus, all of those blessings that are in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, all of that is being read to this church. Their hearts start pounding, and the people begin to thrill at the greatness of the gospel when all of a sudden the guy reading the letter from Paul says this, For this reason I, Paul, the what, church? Prisoner. The prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. And it's as if Paul, in the middle of writing this sentence, realizes that the vision of God and the vision of the church that he has been writing about, every spiritual blessing chosen in him to be holy and blameless. We were dead in our sins, but now we've been made alive in Christ. All of that, it's all of a sudden he begins to realize that the vision of God and the vision of church does not fit with what he has just mentioned as his own personal reality. Paul is in prison. He's in chains. He's writing from a cell. And this is why he breaks off his thoughts in the middle of verse 1 and he doesn't finish those thoughts until he gets down to verse 13 where he says, therefore, because of all of this stuff that I've just written, do not be discouraged because of my sufferings for you because they are your glory. Paul doesn't want them to be discouraged because he's suffering for the faith, but he also doesn't want them to be discouraged because he's suffering because of them, Gentiles. Now, Let's leave Paul there for a moment. Let's step back for a second. Something that I, I say, I think, quite a bit, and maybe I've even said it to you, is, is something like this. Life is hard, but it's not all that complicated. I mean, we can take anything that's simple and complicated, but life generally is not very complicated. We complicate it and we suffer, but life, life is never easy. Life is hard, but it's not complicated. And the reason that's true is because we live in a fallen world. It's full of the thorns and the thistles. And the fallenness is not just out there in the world someplace, but it's in our neighborhoods, it's in our workplace, it's where we go to school, it's even in our home, and sometimes, maybe too many times, it's inside of us as well. And we humans spend a lot of our resources and we spend a lot of our efforts and energy trying to avoid suffering. But the reality is that life can be incredibly hard at times and hard times are going to come to everyone. But let's just take it one step further, shall we? We can, we can take it a step further. In Paul's case, Paul is not suffering because he just happens to be a human being, which he is, living in a fallen world, which he is, but Paul is suffering because he's a Christian. Paul is suffering because he is a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth. And what he, write, he, he writes in that text that, that Michael read for us there at the, the beginning of, of chapter 3 is insight into what to do when the vision of the greatness of the church and the vision of the greatness of what it is that God the Father has done, and God the Son has done, and God the Spirit has done, the antidote for when that vision begins to fail. The first thing Paul says you need to do, 
understand the mystery. Understand the mystery. The word mystery appears all over the New Testament, a lot of it in Paul's writings. It appears seven times in Ephesians, four times in this chapter, verse 3, 4, 6, and 9. Now, we in the Western world, when we think of mysteries, we think of who? Agatha Christie. We think about whodunits. We think about crimes to be solved. We think about a hundred different TV shows. But biblically speaking, a mystery is something that you're never ever going to figure out until it's revealed to you. A mystery, biblically speaking, is something that you're not going to figure out until it's revealed to you. And when it's revealed to you, you're startled and you're amazed and you're astonished. And the mystery is revealed according to Paul in the gospel. Look at verse 6. The mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. So it's not just Gentiles. It's not just Israel, the Hebrews, but it's the Gentiles and the Hebrews together, members together of one body, shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Now the mystery is that all human beings, whether Jew or Gentile, are saved through the gospel. In other words, no one is going to be saved, like every other religion in the world, by keeping the rules. No one is going to be saved because they've done a stellar job in keeping the rules. And at first we want to say, well, you know, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But you know, we know this intuitively, don't we? We know this intuitively. For uh, three and a half decades of ministry, there have been um, moments sitting beside a person in the last couple of moments of their life, a deathbed, talking with them about their faith, and in a candid moment wondered if they had done enough to get to heaven. Knowing intuitively that the rule-keeping is not good enough. And then reading to them the words of Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9. It's by grace you have been saved. Through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the what? Gift of God. It's a gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. You are saved by what does not make sense. That someone died for you in order for you to have life. You have life because someone lost theirs for you. You have gained the boundless riches of Christ, which he talks about in verse 8, because someone was willing to give up all of those boundless riches for you. And when you begin to contemplate and to meditate and to think and to die, fall face first into the truth of the gospel to understand the mystery of how we are all brought into the family of God. Boy, it's just transformational. I mean, who of you guys, who of you in thinking about your wife or wives thinking about your husband and that great love kind of at some point in the first or the second month of that marriage stop thinking about it or stop thinking about it? I mean, what happened over space and time, and for those of us who've been married for like 35 years, what happens is we think about that spouse and that love, and I want you to know, 
I, I'm just a dude. I'm just a guy. And I don't get women all that, you know, I walk into the house and Ellen's cooking dinner, put the briefcase down, and I go, you know what? I don't get all of that, but I want to figure it out. And you think about that wife and that love and all of the, the going around the block together and all of that and what happens. You find yourself just being transformed that someone would take your name, that someone would be with you, not just when you look great, when you happen to be about 21 years old, but they'll even take you when you're 56 and your hair's falling out. And you think about that and it just changes you. You just think about that person. And that's what Paul is doing when he's sitting there in jail in prison. He's thinking to himself, I was out there killing people. I studied under Gamaliel, the, the, the great rabbi. I went you know, to Trinity University of the Hebrew world. And in all of my great intellect, in all of my great thinking, and in all of my own human, prideful, arrogant way of figuring things out, I was working against the will of God and killing people who are my brothers and sisters. But then he realized that there was someone who had died for him in order for all of that to be forgiven. And not only to be forgiven, but to be transformed. And not only transformed, but to be given a purpose and to make a friend of God. And all of that guilt to be cleansed away from him so that he could sleep at night. And not that that happened overnight. You know, Paul disappears for a number of years and he's working through the revelation. He's working through all of his salvation. But he gained the boundless riches of Christ. And even sitting in prison, he's just mesmerized by that. By love. But then the second thing is to understand the great intention for your life. When you become a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth, you become something, you become a part of something that's bigger than you. When you become a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth, you are more than just a consumer of spiritual goods and spiritual blessings. Your life in Christ becomes a visible expression of the kindness of God. Think back to chapter 2 where he says, God raised us up with Christ, and God seated us with him, the Christ, in the heavenly realms in order that in the coming ages he might what? How is he going to show that? Through you. He's going to show the incomparable riches of his grace. What's the next word? Expressed. How's he going to find that expression? In us. In his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. In other words, your life is an expression of beauty derived from two phenomenal things. Number one, God's grace. And number two, God's kindness in giving you the gift of his grace. Now, there is an undeniable part of this that this kindness is seen in just how you're transformed, how you're converted, how you're, you're changed in life. But God has an even greater intention for your life, and that is who you are in the church. He says in Ephesians 3 verse 10, his intent, so there's intentionality here, his intent was that now, right now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. At one level, God intends 
for our church in this community right now, today, and tomorrow, and yesterday to give people a taste of what the future holds, the future that he is preparing for them and for us, what that future holds. And to steal the words of Marcus Bart in his commentary, the church is a window for people to get a glimpse of what God is preparing in that future. We are the world in which the world can see what family life is really all about or what a married couple having made vows to each other is really like, what work ethics in the business place looks like, what business practices are in the kingdom of God, about race relations and friendship and human collaboration as it is intended in the will of God. But it goes way beyond just what humans looking through the window at our level see in the church. He mentions that it's also about the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. And this, my friends, is about the evil beings in the invisible world. Every power that stands against God witnesses Paul in prison because of the gospel. And every one of those invisible powers are astounded at his poise in suffering. There's a buoyancy to Paul. Now, you know Luke chapter 15, right? The, the, the story of the prodigal son and the lost sheep and lost coin. If the angels of heaven celebrate every time a lost human being is found, do you believe that? Do you believe that when people who are lost are found that there is a celebration in heaven? What do you suppose the demons do when Christians rejoice even in their sufferings for the gospel? They witness their defeat. They witness their defeat and they can see Paul stripped of everything. His freedom, his dignity, his comfort, his rights, embroiled in injustices. But what they see is Paul and the church rising above discouragement because of, verse 8, those boundless riches that are in Christ Jesus. Now again, we, we get this. I want to give you an illustration for some of you who's going to hit a little bit closer to home than for others, especially those that have a kid heading off to college. Now you know what that means. When a kid goes off to college, you have a lot of confidence in and you know that without a shadow of a doubt, that school is going to prepare your kid well for a vocation. May even introduce them to a future spouse. It's, it's a good thing. You want your kid to go to this, this particular school. The problem, you need to come up with $10,000 a year to help to pay for the costs. I'm a, a, a theologian, not a mathematician, but I think that's somewhere in the neighborhood of $40,000 over a four-year career. That 40000 is money you're never going to see again, is it? It's not going to go into your savings. It's not going to go into your retirement. In fact, all of this means that you're going to have less disposable income for restaurants and vacations, etc., etc. What it means is that without that disposable income, you are going to suffer for a season. So why do you do it? Why do you suffer for four years or five years? That fifth year is sometimes tough. Why do you willingly suffer for them? 
It's because you love them. It's because you love them. The $40,000 or 50, it turns out to be a fifth year, that, that's, a, that's a pretty big treasure that will never see the light of day in your 401k or your 403b or your Roth or whatever. The 40000 is a big treasure, but it's not the treasure. The treasure is that kid you love. And that's why you suffer gladly. Even though Paul is in prison and in chains, this is what he says. He says, in Christ and through faith in Christ, we may approach God. with freedom and confidence. It's an ironic thing to say for a guy that's in chains, right? That in Christ, I'm free. Paul knew that although he was in prison and behind locked doors and in chains, nothing could keep him from God. And Christ, he knew, was separated for a time from God in order for us to be with God eternally and forever. He knew that Christ was pinned, nailed to a cross in order for us to be free. That Christ was cast out of the presence of God so that we might approach in confidence. That He became like us in our suffering, in order for us to become like Him in His glory. And knowing that He suffered, that the Christ suffered, so that we might see in our sufferings glory. That's Paul's antidote for failing vision. It's understanding the mystery and understanding the greater purpose for your life that God has for you in the church. And to be overwhelmed once again by the facts of the gospel. And maybe that describes you this morning that, you know, I don't, I don't know where you are today. Maybe you're wondering why all of these things are happening to you in your life. The reason for that, as we've said, the thorns and the thistles. But the way that you rise above the inevitability of the thorns and the thistles is when the gospel gets inside of you, the love of God in Christ. And we're going to have a couple of our shepherds down here at the front. And if there are ways that we might minister to you by sharing with you how you respond to the gospel in faith and find your sins washed away through baptism, having turned your life away from you being the Lord of your life to calling Jesus the Lord of your life, whatever it might be in terms of prayer, counsel, encouragement, whatever it might be, these shepherds are going to be down here at the front. I want you to come down and talk to them as we stand and we praise God together. Hark the gentle voice of Jesus falling.